0: Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, Kate Jones tells us about the amazing technology being used to monitor wildlife worldwide and how it is helping us to learn about the fascinating world of bats. Hi everybody, and it's an amazing pleasure to be here in this, in this room. I've only seen it on TV on the Christmas lectures, so I can pretend like I'm, I'm there. Um, So uh, I'm Kate Jones, I'm a scientist and I work at University College London and I also have a joint appointment at London Zoo as well. So I try to think about uh, how uh, biodiversity, how wild nature is declining on our planet just because uh, of the way that we are using up resources and changing the climate patterns on the planet and I try to think about how we could help save wildlife and how to understand how Populations of wild animals are declining, and what we can do about it, what, what, what we can, can we do to save them? So I use, I'm a bit of a nerd, and I love using technology to figure out some of the answers to those questions. So I'm going to show you some of the amazing stuff that's been happening over the last few years it's been an absolute revolution in what technologies we have what sensors we have and what we can tell about how animals are moving uh, what they're saying to each other and how they're responding to changes in our, on our planet so i'm going to take you through some of these uh, new sensors and i'm going to and new technologies and i'm going to show you some of the stuff that i've been doing in my lab in at university college london and the zoo on bats. Bats are awesome, and I hope that you'll all agree with me at the end of the talk. And we get, we've got some bat stickers and badges for people later, so that'll be awesome. All right, so this is the state of, the, of nature on our planet, and it's declining. It's that, that down arrow, and all these, these trends that we're measuring are going downwards. But our, our, ris- our pressures are also going up, so there are going to be projected to be 11 billion people on this planet by 2050. So all those new people need lots more resources and more land to live on. And so that has and more food to eat. And so that has a a, a massive impact on how much space there is for nature. So there's going to be much less space for nature. And so the pressures that we're um, uh, putting our planet under are also increasing. So that's a bad, bad news story. And the benefits that we get from nature, so things that we... Uh, the cultural value, like walking in a forest and feeling calmer, or bees pollinating uh, crops so that we can have food, those benefits are also decreasing by all the tr- all the kind of analyses that we 've been doing across the world. But the good news is that we are responding to these problems and our responses in terms of conservation and people being really interested in nature and building nature reserves or uh, build, building a, a nature reserve in your garden or putting a nest box up or a bee hotel, that's increasing. And people are really interested in, in trying to conserve nature. So that's our response to these problems are increasing. So that's a good news story. So, so I'm going to show you some uh, species which are my particular favorites. And there are less of the individuals of these species than there are people in this room. So that's really quite impressive. So these are this is um, a kakapo. I don't know whether anyone's heard of these. They're absolutely ridiculous. They, they're about this big, and they're ground living parrots, and they live in New Zealand. And they're really cute. But there was only about 150 uh, of those left. There were there was only about 50 until uh, everybody started to. Uh, move them off the islands which were threatened and put them on a safe island. And they've all um, been named. They've all got little beds uh, and heating pads for them to, <laughs> to live on. And they, they all have, uh, you know, they're strictly monitored in how many uh, eggs they have. So other things like the giant salamander. So these are this big. So they're absolutely amazing in China. The Javan rhino. And then the Yangtze river dolphin, which is just here, uh, is actually extinct already. So that's in in, in the Yangtze River in China, so some of these things are, are, are really uh, declining rapidly, and, and I guess the problem is, does it really matter and Then some of these animals and plants and water and air they interact in ecosystems, so they 're just kind of a, a web of life, so some of these are ecosystems like a rainforest or your, uh, or a lake or a um, or the wood next to your house. And some of these ecosystems have services that they provide to us. So if you're walking in a wood, you're much calmer. It's giving you some kind of ecosystem service of, of tranquility and feeling happy. Or cr- crops, and, and bees, are, are, bees are pollinating the crops, and so um, the kind of ecosystem service you're getting from that is pollination. And the, and the goods that you're getting are the crops. So everything's kind of depending on the ecosystems and the ecosystem services that come from there. So these are strange words, but they just mean the things that we get from nature. And I'm just trying to show you how dependent we are on those systems. Now, if you change anything in this system uh, in terms of climate change or land degradation or chopping down that nature reserve next to your house, you're going to change the ecosystem and you're going to change the ecosystem services, and that impacts the goods that we get from those systems, and that impacts our health, well-being, and, uh, and society and economics. So, this is not just me saying this. There's lots and lots of reports all over the world that say and document how important nature is to our sustainability on the planet. So, this is what I don't get, and I've got climate model envy. They've got models of how the planet works and how the carbon and the air temperature changes uh, influence temperature and rainfall across the planet. And they have these predictions going on all the time. And so that you can tell in, say, 50 years or 20 years how hot it's going to be in particular types of the world. Now, we don't have anything like that for nature. And that's astonishing, because I've just told you how important nature is to our functioning as human beings on this planet. And yet we have (laughs) very little idea of how how nature is fearing and how how trends in populations can be reversed, because ultimately, we don't really know enough about these populations. So if you think about it, this data from the climate models comes from little stations. So there's probably one, uh, I don't know, but it'll be within two kilometers of where we're sitting. There'll be a station that's recording the air temperature and the rainfall and the humidity all the time. And all of that information goes into a big model in a computer and that spits out all of of the predictions it's going to make. So it gets all of the information from all over the world to make a model of how we think the world works, and then it starts making predictions. Now, I want to do that for wildlife. I want to know what species are present and how we can help them. And then what impact is that going to have on our planet? So there's been a massive revolution, as I was saying, in how we monitor wildlife. So I want to get to this end goal. I've got this climate model envy, and I want to have a nature model. But how am I going to get that? I'm going to try to get much more data. So we need loads more data about the planet and how wildlife are doing. So I'm going to take you through some of the really cool new techniques and sensors, which have been um, invented to to understand what wildlife we have. So this is from a camera trap, this image. It's a very powerful image. So camera traps are set up in a forest, and um, they just have a camera on them. And as you pass through the trigger, it uh, it triggers the photo to be taken, and then whatever's in the forest is captured on film. So, this is an image from Liberia, and it was from my colleagues at ZSL, the London Zoo. Um, this is a pygmy hippo. So, this pygmy hippo was caught for the very, very first time in Liberia in this, uh, in this forest. And this image is a really powerful image. It's the first time it was ever seen. And the president of Liberia was so loved pygmy hippos, absolutely loved them, and uh, decided to set aside this whole reserve in Liberia as, a, as a, nature, a nature reserve. So these images are really powerful. And, and she loved pygmy hippos so much that she decided to set this whole area aside for, for them. So another new kind of sensor, and these are some of my favorites, are these tags. So the thing in your phone when you're trying to play a game, not that you'd be playing a game now, obviously, uh, but if you're playing a game, and you're moving the phone up and down, it's got a little sensor in there called an accelerometer. And it means it, it, tells, it can tell when you're going up and down or to the side or, or forwards and backwards. Um, so this sensor can tell what movement you're making. And so you can use that information. So this is the three channels that come out of the accelerometer that you have in your phones. And you can use clever, some clever maths to figure out what that motion means in terms of behavior. So this means I'm standing upright and I'm a penguin, and this means I'm horizontal, and I'm having a bit of a sunbathe. So you can tell from what the, sen- the information coming from the sensor is saying to see what behavior the animal is doing. So that's amazing, because we, we don't need to be watching these animals all the time. You can put these sensors on them and then understand what's happening and where they're going. So another really awesome example, I don't know if anybody saw this show, but it was awesome. The Secret Lives of Cats, it was a Horizon program a few years ago. And the researchers all went in to an Oxfordshire village. And they asked all the cat owners to come. and <laughs> They gave them a GoPro and a GPS to put on the cat's collar. And they said, OK, we're going to monitor your cats over the next uh, a month and see what they do. So the owner of this cat here, said to them, well, there's no point putting that on my cat because all it does is just sleep on the couch all day. So they came back to her at the end and said, this is what your cat has been doing for the last, every night goes about 20 kilometers and raids all the food from all of the other houses (laughs) in the village. So that cat wasn't sleeping on the couch or had a secret double life. So this is a way to kind of understand how, what animals are doing and 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 on where they're going where they're traveling and it's not just cats or penguins but you can put them on anything now and these are getting much and much much smaller as they go on and yesterday one of the um, a really amazing thing happened where we we've, we've managed to put a satellite uh, a sensor on the Icarus the, the space station it's called Icarus this this uh, sensor and it looks down on the planet to pick up the very very tiny signals in some of these trackers so we can track things very very small now like bees so it's going to be absolutely incredible and this revolution in understanding where animals are going is it's just absolutely incredible and really exciting okay so enough about n- things which aren't bats and <laughs> things which are bats. So I'm really interested in bats, and I've been interested in bats since I was about 16, which makes me really sad. But <laughs> I've been really passionate because they're so weird and awesome. So bats use sound to find their way around, and they use it like... It's called echolocation, so they bounce informa- they bounce sound off things and then interpret the echoes that come back. So this is how they do it. So they have... Uh, they emit a sound from their mouth, and then they listen to the echoes that are coming back. And they're so clever that they can interpret uh, what the, where the object is, how fast it's moving, and what the object is, so they can tell that it's a moth and how far away it is. So moths are also pretty clever. So, they've uh, evolved ears to hear the bats. So sometimes when a bat, or some, some moths have, some, when some moths hear bats, they drop out of the sky to evade the bats, (laughs) or some some moths have evolved the ability to jam bats, so they they emit a sound themselves which jams the bats, so the bats can't tell where the moth is. So the bats have responded again by shutting some of their echolocation down, so they go into stealth mode when they're trying to find a moth. So it's a crazy battle of wills in the sky above you. So these uh, calls are really high frequency, so you can't hear them. So, um, typically, we can hear about up to from zero to 20 kilohertz. Uh, So, kids can hear right up to that 20 kilohertz. So, you kids in the audience can hear that. So, us adults and old people, it's about 16 kilohertz. (laughs) And it gets worse as you get older. But bats echolocate from anything from uh, four kilohertz up to over 200 kilohertz. So, absolutely amazing range of frequencies that they use. So if you have a high-frequency call, you can see really tiny things. However, there's always a trade-off. So if you have a high-frequency call, it doesn't travel very far in air. So it means that you're very short-sighted, so you can't see very far, but you can see in fine detail when you get close. So it, it depends on what the bat is doing. So if it wants to fly really high and it's eating big insects, then it will have a low frequency call. But if it's foraging in uh, and it needs to, to figure out where the insects are, then it will have a high frequency call to find tiny insects. OK, so I'm just going to uh, let you listen to some to some back calls. So these are some typical UK species that um, I've got some recordings of. So there's this one here, which is the pipistrelle, which is one of the commonest species, so it's like a little chirp. So these are kind of visual representations of sound that um, I have uh, drawn here to show you how what this call is. And I'll and we do a bit of an experiment in just a minute. And then this one is a noctule, and this is a really loud, obnoxious bat. It's really loud. It's like a, a like a clubbing disco happening in your uh, in your bedroom. It's really loud. And and if it was uh, Actually, uh, audible to us, we've been sending in complaints to the council that there's this bat above, and it's making too much noise. So this one is really weird. So this is a rhinolophus bat, a horseshoe bat, and it has a really, really high-frequency call. It's it's way up there. So that's just bonkers. And then these bats are called myotis bats, like a Dorbenton's bat or a Natra's bat, and they have these really short clicks, go all the way down. So they need to find out a whole load of things about small and big things. So they cycle through a load of different frequencies to find the insects. So I I was thinking, well, okay, bats are leaking misinformation about themselves into the environment all the time. So they're making these sounds to find their way around. So it's not like bird calls. Bird calls call to attract mates and go, hello, I'm really sexy. I Come over here. And that's all, get out of my territory. That's what birds are saying. But for bats, they use sound to find their way around. So they, they make it all the time when they're flying and out at night. So I was thinking, well, OK, let's see if we can use that to monitor their populations. So uh, we were in the pub, and we were thinking, this is where all the best science ideas come. <laughs> and uh, we think, oh, what can we do? Oh, you know, let's see if we can monitor them using a microphone stuck on a car and driving around the world to see what bats are there. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you think that? <laughs> I decided to set up this, uh, this international bat rescue, no, the uh, monitoring program. So, I, I, so we talked to some of our friends in, uh, in Europe. So we decided to start at the beginning in Transylvania. Because where else would you start a global <laughs> bat monitoring program? So there aren't any, Dracula- there aren't any vampires in, in, in Transylvania or anywhere in Europe, they're in South America. So that's, uh, that's something, bust- a myth busted for you. So we, we kind of did uh, a kind of reverse Genghis Khan move from uh, Europe over to Mongolia and to, to, to Japan and we had a lot of fun. So we engaged local groups. So these were groups which were already interested in nature or they just hadn't heard how awesome bats were or they did birds and realised that was really boring and they were going to help <laughs> us do bats. So uh, and, and, some, and the ones in Russia were amazing and they um, are probably on some list now with the government. But um, they helped us. They're interested in local democracy and... Um, and, uh, and cleaning up their area. And there were school kids and, um, and uh, school teachers that took part. So we tried to engage the communities and provide the data that they, they needed to understand what was happening to nature and biodiversity across their country. So um, I got all the data back, and we designed some cool websites to get all the data from Japan into London, where I work. And, um, Every hour that you record some high-frequency calls, it's about a gigabyte full of information, a gigabyte of information. So I've got petabytes of information from this survey. It's been going on since 2006. So um, I didn't know what a petabyte was. I mean, that's enormous amounts of data. So um, the problem then is how are you going to analyze all of that information? And I think that's a very common thing with all these new sensors which are coming out. What are you going to do with all the data? How are you going to tell what species are doing and how um, uh, and what species are present? So it's getting even worse. Actually, or better. I mean, I did. I was moaning earlier that they didn't have enough data, and now I'm kind of moaning that we've got too much data and we don't know what to do with it. So there's been a, a massive growth in citizen science as well. So this is where just everybody, uh, any. Any ordinary person can take part in a science study and help design and analyze the data. So some of these, these new apps are, are, are really amazing. They can, um, you, know, you can record uh, information on them. So this Ladybird app, uh, you can record whether you've seen different types of Ladybird in your garden and send the information off. Uh, this one, uh, NatureGate, is, is pretty cool. So you, you say what you found, but then you can see what your neighbours found as well. So there's a bit of a competition going and a social network kind of thing. And this Ashtag app was really interesting. Um, this uh, was, was uh, designed by somebody that heard that the ash dieback disease had come into the UK... Uh, on, this, on, the, on one of the Mondays. And by Friday, they designed it, sent it to the app stores, and it was on people's phones by the next week. So this was recording where the ash dieback disease was and was really useful in tracking what species were affected by this disease. So these are really powerful things, but they, they give us so much data, we don't know how to deal with it. So this is one of the solutions which has has recently come up. And this is run by a friend of mine called Jonathan. Uh, He's also a Londoner, North Londoner. So he's, he's made this website called iSpot. And what happens is that if you're not sure about what's in your garden, and you haven't got a guide, and you don't know anything about it, you can take a picture, and you can upload it to this website. And behind this website are lots and lots and lots and lots lots of people who really like looking at pictures of wildlife. (laughs) Loads of people, and they're really, really good at it. And actually, there's a little competition going, so if you get things right, you get a little badge. So I've I've done very well on the bat ones, but I'm very, very bad at anything else. (laughs) So nobody trusts my identifications on anything else. So what it means is that if you're, if you're not sure about something in your garden, you can take a picture and you upload it to the, the website. And he was telling me that the mean kind of turnaround time for an identification from someone who gets an alert on their phone is five seconds. So there's a lot of sad people there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an amazing resource. You should go on and have a look because it is awesome. So uh, another way to kind of look at these images and try to get identifications is is to um, think about how you can automate that. So like uh, voice recognition software or picture recognition software, or you're looking at a phone and it it knows who you are. So could we start to do that for uh, some species or, or recordings or some of the information that we've got. So I, I was, uh, had all this data, and um, I said, I've got petabytes of data. It's terrible. Oh my god, how, how am I going to cope? So I talked to someone called Chris Lintott, who, who is a broadcaster, and he's an astronomer. And he runs this website called Zooniverse. So if you haven't heard of this, you should log on, because it's awesome. So they, are, they take pictures of the Mars and then get you to classify it for them. And they've also got this one called um, Old Weather. So, some of these climate models I've been telling you about are not very good uh, because we're missing lots of information from the sea. And so, someone had the bright idea of scanning all of the records from ships' logs from the 18th, and 17th century. And then, but you've got all these scans, you have to kind of understand what's in them. And this website, you can log on and pretend to be a ship's captain and just digitize all of the information for them. And that goes into these algorithms in these models, and then produces um, uh, better predictions. So I asked him about our, my petabytes of data. And he kind of did that snorty laugh, you know, that was like, oh my god, I can't, she, she, she doesn't really understand what, how little data that is. So he was saying from the Hubble Space Telescope, they get a petabyte every half an hour. So I was like, oh right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, After laughing at me for a bit, he said, well, why don't you set up uh, one of these websites for your bat data? So um, we decided to call it Bat Detective. So um, and there are other ones as well. So go on and have a look. There's Serengeti, um, Snapshot Serengeti, which is awesome. There's loads of things, Penguin Watch, everything. It's brilliant. So we got together some mates, and we decided to uh, get all the information that we got from the iBats project and put it onto the website. So what we asked people to do was to um, go through the information that we've got. And we had a little guide on there about how to do it. And so you play the calls, so you can hear the calls, like the ones I was uh, uh, playing you before. So, and then classify them into different types of calls. So this is an insect, and we, we know it's an insect because we've done some, lots of recordings of them. And we've got a little guide on the website And then these are back calls here, so this is a sequence, and then this is another sequence here. And this is just kind of stray mechanical noise, which we didn't quite know what that was. So I asked the public to help me do this, and I had about, from from last year, this is up to last year, we had 8,000 people take part that did almost half a million classifications for us, which is astonishing. And and three three users in particular did almost uh, 50,000 each. That's a lot of work. And these are just people that were interested in the project. They're not scientists or anything. Uh, One of them lives in America, and two of them live in the UK. So it's amazing that they they wanted to help us take part. So we wanted to classify these calls in the data, not just because we wanted to find out what was there, but we wanted to give it to... uh, Machine learning algorithm, like artificial intelligence algorithm, to learn what a bat call looks like, and so when we give it another call, it can tell us whether it's a bat or not. Okay, so we came up with this is uh, quite new, and we've come up with a, a thing that can go through the recordings, and it tells you if um, it tells you if you've got a bat or not. So this is just a probability of whether you've got a bat. And so it can drag out all of this information within milliseconds. So, petabyte, nothing. It just goes through and takes out all the, all the calls. Um, so, there are different types of calls that we found in the recordings as well. So, bats don't just uh, make echolocation calls to find their way around, they also change their calls as they get closer to insects to, to eat them. So, this is, this is a call where the bat is speeding up their. Because it's found an insect, and then it kind of blows a raspberry at the end when it's it's the call is really really fast and close together, and it catches an insect like like that. So this is um, ooh. So it's slow, slow. Ah, I found an insect. So I'm going to speed up like that at the end, catching an insect, and then. And then some bats sing to each other to attract mates, since we didn't know that. So these calls are um, incredibly beautiful. (laughs) So typically a male will sing to attract a female. So these are, are very unusual calls. So, okay, we've got the different bat calls, and we know it's a bat, but what... The question on your lips is, what bat is that? So what, how can we tell what species of bat it is? Well, it turns out it's really hard. So uh, that's taken me a couple of years to figure that out. So this is kind of uh, the, lowest, the lowest frequency bat that we've got. So this is a pallid bat uh, from, from uh, the deserts of Arizona. It's got a pallid bat or a spotted bat. And then this one is a, another one of those horseshoe bats with these long high-frequency calls, up to over 200 kilohertz, which is really high. So we got a library of calls from Europe and the UK, and we we showed the computer all of these labels, and said, this this is this species, this is this species, and we we got it to train it like a a face recognition algorithm on your phone, or, or Siri. So it's like Siri for bat calls. So it's Siri for bats, like a Shazam for bats. So, this is how uh, so we did some experiments about how good it was. So, we, so we left out half the data, we did the, the, the experiment, and then we compared it to um, uh, our test. So, we test and trained it, trained it to see how good it is. So, we're really, really good at telling what these uh, horseshoe bats are. We're really, really good. So, this is not 100% correct. So, 100% correct means we're really good at, at telling what species they are. And we're very good at telling what those long, uh, long high-frequency calls are, because they're very distinctive. And we're quite good at um, telling what the pipistrels are and the long-eared bats are, so we're quite good at that. And we're medium good at telling what those big, loud, noxials, those obnoxious, really loud bats are. We're quite good at that. We're absolutely pants at telling about anything about a meiosis call. And though those meiosis calls I showed you were these ones with the long, straight calls straight down, they all look exactly the same. So it's really difficult to tell what uh, those species are at the moment. So that's the kind of area of research that we're looking into, like, what, what are these calls doing? And how do bats tell each other apart? So it, mum, mum uh, um, bats can tell little pup bats apart. So you should be able to... So we can't even recognise the different species at the moment. You should be able to do it for individual recognition as well. So, okay, we're back to our IBAT data, so we've been driving around the world. What's some of the results? So, I'm just showing you some of the results from Jersey. So, for those of you who've temporarily forgotten where Jersey is, it's off the coast of France. So, we have a really keen bat group there called the Jersey Bat Group, and they are crazy, really crazy. They're really crazy about bats and wildlife, and they just love collecting data so that they can track all of their populations. So one man in particular, David Tipping, who uh, was amazing, he drove around all of, the ro- all of the roads in Jersey with the microphone on top. And he's done that for five years. So he does two transects, one in July and one in August, every year, and he's driven all of the roads on this island. So it's not really a sample of the island, it's a census of the bats in Jersey, which is absolutely incredible. So we did all of the, all the recognition and the species identifications. And I showed him this map. So this is all the dots and all the species. And I showed him that there's a, a Pipistralis coolia, a Cooley's pipistrel. He was like, that's totally wrong, Kate. It's totally wrong. There aren't any here. And I said, oh, no. Like, maybe my experiment was wrong, and the algorithm's wrong, and it's all wrong, and oh no. And then he found a a bunch of them uh, next to his office. (laughs) So he goes, "Uh, I think they're here, it's okay, I think you're right. So we have like a big map of all the bats in Jersey, but what I wanted to know was what the population is doing. And so we tried to plot the trends across the five years that he's been doing the surveys to show that some of the species are increasing. So it's kind of really amazing that you can go from the survey to a trend of knowing what the population is doing just just in one go, and I I think that's amazing. So this kind of fits to some of the bat populations in in our country. So this is a trend from the Bat Conservation Trust of some of the common species in our country, and this is also an increasing trend over time. So it kind of fits to what's happening to bats in our country so uh, just to kind of um, to, to finish up with some, a really cool uh, new project that we're doing in the Olympic Park. So we've been um, trying to think about how to move on from just people. I know it's really fun to put a microphone on the car and drive around, but it's a bit dangerous because you're only going at 15 miles an hour. <laughs> you do have to have that red thing on. So we thought what we could do is build some new sensors so what we've done is we 3D printed all these boxes. And we work with Intel. So this has got a microphone inside. And it listens to the spectrogram and the recording. And then it does the classification. And then it tells it what species it is on the chip in the sensor. And then sends that by Wi-Fi to a website in real time. That's awesome. <laughs> it's so cool, this project. I can't believe I was involved. Brilliant. So we picked the Olympic Park was is, is a cool place. And um, they, they're supposed to be designing it so that people and wildlife can live there in harmony. I don't know whether the West Ham fans count as harmony, but that is what they're supposed to be doing. So these are all the sensors that we put up in the park. And if you log on tonight to Nature Smart Cities, you can see the bats coming out in real time. So this is what you'll see. This is, I've sped this up so that you can uh, see the bats coming out. So they, these are all the sensors, and it flashes when it hears a bat, and it sends it to the website. And the red circle is how many bats have been recorded that night. So it gets wiped clean every night, and then you can see the bats coming out in real time. So you can see the bats on the park. So last night, I, t- I tweeted, I looked at the, the recordings last night, and I was absolutely astonished. We had twenty-four thousand calls on the park last night, which is absolutely incredible. So it's the best night that we've ever had. So um, you know, have a look, and it's it's crazy. It's really fun. It's really addictive. <laughs> like, oh, I need to go to bed. No, I'm looking for bats. So we've just been looking at some of the data that's been coming out of the of the of the of the sensors. And there's loads of data, so it's, it's taken a lot of my students a lot of time to try to figure out what to do with all this data. So this is just how many bat calls per night. So it's quite variable. And when it's raining, the bats don't come out. And I, did, I didn't realise how, how, how much they didn't come out, because I launched it on the BBC in June. And uh, the night before, it had been raining, and I checked in the morning just to make sure that there was some some bats there for the BBC to report on the website and everything. There weren't any bats at all. And I thought the whole system had gone down. I was like, this is, this is not good. But it was just because the bats, uh, you know, it was raining. They, they hate the rain. They can't see very well, and the insects don't fly. So I've been not just interested in bats, but acoustics in general. And, and this is uh, some graphs that I'm just going to show you to characterize an area. So this is a, 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 a nice garden in London, and this is a, a nature reserve. And this is just showing you how noisy these are and what types of noises there are. So this is like city noise and biotic sounds. So you can see how they change through the day. And this gives us a kind of way to monitor the environment. So if something changes, we can see you know, what its impact is on, on nature. So We've we've basically been trying all kinds of things about how to reduce the costs of these things so everyone can have one. And this is an audio moth that we've been developing. So it's about this big. And it's uh, these sensors and all of this stuff are thousands of pounds, usually. And um, this is 20 pounds. And uh, we've just scattered gunned them across Madeira. This is Madeira. (laughs) And to see what bats were then, there's a very endangered species on there, and we wanted to figure out what was going on. So these are uh, really much... much uh, They're becoming more cheap and uh, available for, for people to use. So I guess the, the, the last thing I wanted to say is that these apps on the phones are becoming really sophisticated now because they're pulling in all of these algorithms and recognition things onto the phones. So, I showed you those apps before, but what I didn't show you was this one called Cic- Cicada Hunt. Uh, this one has a, a, a voice recognition system in the phone, so it's like a Siri for cicadas. So, if you're in the New Forest where this, this survey is based, you can switch it on and it will tell you if there are these cicadas there, this, this New Forest cicada, which is amazing. There's, is this is also one uh, for birds, so you can hold this up in your back garden, and it will do uh, a Shazam for birds in your garden. It's amazing. amazing. And then this one is a bat one, so you can plug a little uh, thing, a microphone, into your phone, and then you can see the spectrograms as they come through your phone, and it will tell you what bat it is using some of our algorithms. So these are incredible kind of tools, and I think it's only going to grow when you get virtual reality and new ways to interpret the, the world. So I just want to end with this image. And I think this image is really powerful for me. Because as a child, uh, I was taken around woods and nature reserves and usually a bloke, an old bloke with a beard and some sandals, a bit scruffy, a bit, well, like me, but not with a beard. <laughs> they, they told me what these things were in the wood. And... Uh, Uh, or they they made it up, (laughs) either way. And there was very little engagement in that kind of experience of learning. And what I kind of imagine is that 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 magnifying glass is not just a magnifying glass, but it's an interpretation tool. So you're looking through a virtual glass, and it's giving you voice recognition and visual recognition of the things around you. And it's like a, a way of technology not just destroying the planet, but enabling us to enjoy the planet more and to engage people in the world around them so that they hopefully want to save it. Thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you very much. A really (laughs) fantastic talk. I think we've got time. If anybody has one or two questions, does anyone have a question for Kate? Um, And... Where do we have Dominique? So, hands up. Yeah, right at the front. When you mean, uh, like, um, they're extinct, are they still in, like, like wildlife resorts? Um, So, you mean some of the, like, Javan rhino and things like that. Uh, Yeah, so they're all in a nature reserve, um, so they're kind of protected because people, for some reason, are chopping off their horns so they can make some potions. I don't know. I don't know why they do that. But, you know, there's only a very few of them left. I think there's about 12 of them left. So it's, it's, really, it's really bad. But there are other hopeful things. Like, you can do something about it. Okay. Um, do you know when you were talking about the animals? Yeah. With the birds, what did you mean um, when they <laughs> had um, beds? Did you? The kakapos, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, well... Um, they wanted to look after them because there was only, like, 50 left. And one of them was called Henry, Henry Robert. <laughs> and they've got, all got names, and they were all very special. And uh, they found that if they, if they had a, like, little heated bed, they would do better in the winter. And also, if the, if the uh, female parrots were laying eggs, the eggs would do better because they were kind of heated. So they decided to put these little electric beds in the forest for the kakapo. They're very cute. There's a little online video of, uh, on YouTube of um, last year, and they had like, loads of babies born. It was amazing. And just uh, astonishing to see somebody walking through, like, a f- like they're trying to get through a load of kakapos. You know, It's like they were like pests, you know, because they've done so well. So that's a really great video. You should watch that. On your, um, well, on the, um, on the ser- ser- when you were searching for bats, did you find any Malaysian flying foxes? With, oh, that's a really interesting question. So, um, in the olden days, we used to think, before genetics and uh, proper science, we used to think that um, flying, that, that, that primates were related to, to bats. So, fruit bats were related to us. So we were very closely related. And then there were a whole load of other bats which made these echolocation sounds. So we thought that primates and these big fruit bats, you know, the big fruit bats with the big eyes, they were more like us. And then there was a whole load of other bats over there that did echolocation. So they did all the genetics and worked out all the relationships. And it turns out that those big fruit bats that don't echolocate and hunt for bats are just bats. They just live in this group of bats that echolocate. And it just means that bats are really complicated. So some, the fruit bats stopped echolocating for some reason and started eating fruit. So fruit bats are part of bats, so they're all the same thing. It's just that there's been a massive adaptation to stop echolocating. OK, and I think we have one more there. Um, can you buy the things that you put on your cat? To, <laughs> uh, we put um, on which to... ones? You know... Oh, the you... cat. Yeah. So if you put, if you can buy GoPros and GPS tags, there's some little uh, key things that you can get from um, from mapping. So you can put those on the cat, and you can download the data and have a look at it. So I think there are kind of little, little circles that you can get. And you put them on the collar, and you can look at all the data where the cat has gone. So just Google that. Um, what if your cat doesn't have a collar? I think you'll just have to try a collar out with it on for a day or something. Okay, and then, and then, then I think we've got one more question in the middle. The, the boy with the white t-shirts. When did you start research of bats? Um, when I was about, um, uh, about 18, I was, I was quite interested in bats and wildlife. No, let me go back a little bit further. When I was 13, my brother took me to see uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> and I sat there in the front, and I don't think I started to breathe properly until the middle of that, sh- that, that film. I thought it was amazing. I thought there's somebody called Dr. Jones <laughs> running around this, this forest uh, and catching stuff, and then looking at stuff, and then rescuing people, and burning plane, that's not so good, but, but looking at all this amazing stuff and being, having exciting adventures, and I was like, that is what I am going to be doing. So, then, so that's what I was going to do. So then I thought, well, David Attenborough is pretty cool, so I'll do a kind of combo of those two things. So that's when I went to university, and I was going, right, I'm going to do zoology. And my dad was like, what? <laughs> You're going to be a doctor? No, <laughs> I'm going to be a zoologist, and I'm going to go in the field and do that. So that is what I've done. So I got interested in wildlife, and then somebody at the university was interested in bats, and he took me to visit a bat roost, and he put a little pipistrelle in my hand like that, and it kind of just didn't do anything. just looked at me and went, yeah, and I just thought that is so cool and hard-ass. I just thought that was brilliant. You know, like a bat is not scared of you at all, just sitting there going, you just woke me up. Why am I here? And I just thought that was amazing, and I've just been completely hooked from then on, so I've been the chair of the Bat Conservation Trust, which is a massive charity in the U.K looking at bats. I've got bat PhD students, bat master's students. I've done lots of things on bats. I've been all over the world. I've had a fantastic time, and I am here. Thank you.) <laughs>